Father God, we come to you tonight and we thank you for your goodness and your mercy, Lord, and your grace. God, we thank you for the fact that you have a plan for our lives. And God, the fact that our plans don't always work. God, but, but you know what's best for us because you created us. God, you've called us to go out to love the poor and the sick and the needy, God, and to care for the orphans and the widows. You see, that is pure religion. So God, I pray that we would take that to heart. We would take that as our personal mission, Satan, Father, to go. To go into the world, God, and to show your love. And if that just means going through your day with a smile, and not a frown and not getting angry and just showing Christ's love to whoever we need. I pray that that would be us. I pray that we would realize your love so much that we can't help but to spill it out onto others. Father, I pray that you would restore in us the joy of your salvation. Give us a clean heart. Purify our hearts and our minds, God, and our thoughts. Set our minds on you and on things above. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like, you can open your Bibles to the book of Mark. Um, we have just finished up seven weeks going through the book of Malachi, and then we're going to move into Mark. So tonight, we have Marty Longoria is doing uh, a painting, and as I said before, Sunday nights, we like to keep three basic components of worship, communion, and a message. But at the same time, uh, we want to do some things to celebrate ways to worship in a, in a different way uh, or in a unique way. And so uh, tonight, Marty is for the second time actually doing a painting that goes along with their message. So he will be up here while I'm speaking. If that's distracting for you, I'm sorry. Um, we're doing it anyways. Uh, this is round two of, of doing this. So we're going to try. The, the other painting Marty did is over on the side of Jesus. It's a massive Jesus that has uh, had some good feedback from our student room, except somebody broke it. It was hanging from a wall, and somebody knocked it down and broke the frame. I didn't tell Marty that. Sorry, but that frame's broken. So, anyways, but the book of Mark. So, like I said, we just went through <clears throat> seven-week study Malachi, which will lead us then into Mark as we begin to study this book. And tonight, the, the real purpose of tonight is not so much for me to, to pull out from our text in chapter 1 uh, a point to hit home or three points to hit home, but really, in essence, just to begin the book. Uh, that's what we're going to do on Sunday nights. We're going to start uh, at the beginning of a book, and we're going to work our way through. And we were going to begin with Mark seven weeks ago, but Mark starts out with a quote from Malachi, and I felt it was good for us to back up and get, a, and get another picture or, or a fuller picture, scooting us back in time a little bit about what God was doing leading up into Mark, which will give us today a good picture as Mark begins in a connection, New Testament, Old Testament, in the story of Jesus. It starts out in, in saying, it says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, and most of us will probably say the Son of God. A lot of Greek texts, uh, early Greek texts, do not contain this the Son of God uh, in there, and it just specifically says Jesus Christ. Now, what we're going to do as we go through Mark, we're going to jump some between other gospels, and I really like doing this in the gospels because we get to see four different accounts of basically the same story. Um, some will have very uh, very unique 
substances to their story. Some will just be uh, almost carbon copies of each other. It's all the story about Jesus, but each will be unique and similar in its own way. But what is neat about that is we get to sit down and look at four different perspectives to give us a fuller picture. Uh, oftentimes it can be argued from those outside the church community or outside being a follower of Jesus argues that the Bible is contradictory. And here we could pull up some stories and look at, you know, clear differences in the way things are written or stated or remembered. <clears throat> and instead, it's just a, excuse me, I'm sorry, my allergies have acted up. And so if I coughed <clears throat> repeatedly tonight, I'm sucking on a uh, on a mint to try to prevent that. But sorry. Anyways, but gives us a fuller picture rather than differences. And so in anyways, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one thing that is unique to Mark and Matthew both, are that they specify Jesus Christ. Now, which is normal for us to read, you know, you pick up your New Testament, you start reading through, and you see Jesus, and often it's attached with Jesus Christ, and we just keep going. Uh, and that obviously identifies Jesus for us, and we think nothing of it. By the time <clears throat> that Mark's gospel shows up, uh, and, and it's not clear, who is Mark? It could be uh, John Mark, who is a follower with Paul and Barnabas and Peter, who made his way doing missionary journeys and sharing the gospel and would have been picking up these stories from from Peter specifically then to write his gospel account and then present, we think, maybe to a, a Roman audience or predominantly Roman audience that could have some Jewish people in it. Um, or, or it could have been somebody they ran into named Mark who then converted and then built the case uh, and story for Jesus. We're not sure. Um, so, But we do know time period, it's, you know, latter half of the first century, <clears throat> Jesus Christ or Christ is already automatically attached to Jesus. And so for Mark to to want to indicate Jesus, he could have just said Christ. Or he could have said, just said Jesus. The only well-known figure already by the time this book hits, anywhere between the 60s and, and late 70s, the date kind of ranges depending on who you are and where you fall. And that's okay. It doesn't really matter. But already those two names can stand alone and clearly communicate automatically who it is we're referring to. But the author here, Mark, writes and says the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, and he, and he lists both of them, possibly to, to drop a hammer and say, hey, stop what you're doing and pay attention to what's about to happen. Rather than just, hey, let's quickly refer to who this figure is so you all know and let's move on, to name both would very possibly be to, to stop and say, wait. You need to sit down, you need to stop what you're doing, you need to turn your ears on if you're five, and begin to listen to what I'm about to tell you. And this is going to be a story that John Mark or Mark or whoever this Mark is that tells, and stories are very important in this culture, in this setting, in this time frame. Stories are how they communicate what they believe is true about God, about man, about spirituality, about the ways of the world, that all these things are communicated in a story. And that dates all the way back to just the Jewish community the same way. What they believed about God and how man got here and our condition, all those things were communicated through stories, originally through through oral stories and then eventually written down. And so Mark is a story of Jesus. This is the story of Jesus and how God is relating with man. So he says, the beginning or beginning to tell the story of the gospel about Jesus, it is written in the prophets. Uh, yours might say Isaiah, but again, there, your Greek text, uh, a lot of them just will indicate the prophets. And he says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now, this connected us back to Malachi. If we go back and look at Malachi 3, 3 verse 1, 
God is talking and he's answering a question. And we went through this for seven weeks that you have in Malachi. You have God makes a statement to the people of Israel. They then ask a question. God then responds in discussion. Well, this has just followed the question of where is the God of justice? And we talked about that's the whole umbrella or undercurrent of the book of Malachi and the condition and the perspective of the people during that time. They were asking, God, where are you? Not only where are you, but God of justice, hey, come on, let's see something. And he answers with, at one point in chapter 3, during that discussion, I'm going to send my messenger ahead of me, and then I'm going to show up. And that was chapter 3, the beginning of, is a uh, a discussion about eschatology and him saying, in the future, I'm going to show up and this is what I'm going to do. And it's vague and abstract about what he's telling you he's going to do. However, we see we get to the New Testament now, and there's an automatic connection with the story of Jesus all the way back to our Old Testament. God promising, I'm going to show up. The God of justice will show up. I will send a messenger, and then I will come. And Mark begins telling his story, saying, let me quote the prophets to you. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of the one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then verse 4 it says, and so John came. So here you have your automatic connection between Malachi and God's promise, I'm going to show up. Where is the God of justice? I am coming. I'm going to send a messenger to prepare, and then I'm going to show up. And then Mark says, here's the quote from Malachi and the quote from Isaiah 40, and then John came. So the answer now, where is, where is the God of justice? Right here. You're now going to get that story of what God is doing. Now, does it look exactly the way that they had anticipated? Probably not. Most of you, if you've been in church at, for any time, once you begin to talk about the New Testament and Jesus and showing up in this Messiah or one who sent or a Savior, was not anticipated to be the figure that he was. He's anticipated to come back to reign earthly on the throne of David to throw off anybody who is hindering or oppressing the nation of Israel. They're supposed to reestablish the whole nation the way that was before to power for eternity. And so he's not exactly what they anticipate. However, again, where's the God of justice? Now he's coming. And so it says, and John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's stop there. What John shows up and he starts to teach What is he teaching? He's teaching repentance, and they're practicing baptism. Why? And it goes on to state for the forgiveness of sins. If John can show up, begin to teach about, hey, you need to turn from your sin, turn to God, begin to live godly, and let me dunk you in some water for the forgiveness of sins. Why do we have Jesus? What's the point? And so let's look a little deeper into this. Baptism is a practice that dates back all the way into our Old Testament law. As God begins to tell the nation of Israel, here's how you deal with life. And and it goes all the way back into their homes. Uh, And and I can't give you the reference because I didn't look it up, and I'm sorry. Um, But it's in the Old Testament law. I believe it's in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, or it could be both. I do not remember the last time that I actually went through this passage and referred it. But I'm doing it today. So I apologize. Um, If you want to find it, go find it. Um, I'll find it next week if you want. I know you're not arguing with me. I'm acting like somebody's arguing with me right now and nobody's even talking. I'm arguing with myself in my head. That's what I do. I'm crazy. And so even with the house, you've got four walls and a door. And they would say, in the law, if you walk in and there's mold or mildew, there was a way of cleansing this mold or mildew that, that connects with baptism, the way you do it. There are different ceremonies that go on when, 
<clears throat> when a woman had a baby, there was a diff- there was a cleansing process that she went through in order to enter back into the temple into worship. So it was a regular practice. If you took a vow, there are multiple different things that you did that would then you would go through a process of cleansing that was very much like a baptism type ceremonial cleansing to go back into worship. And so once we hit the New Testament, this is still a practice that's used and it kind of it evolves and changes and moves. And then you hit the New Testament, and here is John. He's teaching and preaching repentance, and he's baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins. So why do we need Jesus? Again, the states all the way back, and it's a, a practice that is very normal and very um, very known at that time. If you are looking for or if you are beginning to pursue back a relationship with God in repenting, I'm turning now from sin, what I'm doing, and I'm going to begin to plea and appeal to God for forgiveness, a symbolic way of indicating that would be through a baptism. That doesn't mean that that actual practice cleanses you on the inside. But it, it, it indicated, much like it does today, indicated that I am now appealing to God for forgiveness. I'm now turning to be different and appealing to God for relationship. And so it does not indicate here, Mark doesn't say that he does this and sins are forgiven. He says that he's preaching repentance, he's doing baptism, and again, this whole idea of he's preparing the way, those who are coming and repenting and being baptized are now being ready to become followers of Jesus. And, so, and we even see that. What, <clears throat> let's go further in, in, what, um, in what John teaches. If you go to Matthew 14, like I said, we're going we're gonna to move some. <coughs> just went to Malachi. When you teach from a place so long, you can automatically flip there. It's kind of fun. It makes you look really smart. Or your Bible is just really worn. If we go to Matthew 14, what it, what it was that John was teaching. Here's a specific <clears throat> storyline about what, what was going on with John. In 14, verse 1, it says, At the time Herod... Uh, the, oh, man, here's a word I didn't read. Steve's going to correct me later on it. Tetriarch... Uh, heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is, the miraculous power, <coughs> powers are at work in him. And so, verse 3. Now, Herod had arrested John. Here's the background. He, he had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they had considered him a prophet. And so, here you have John, and he's dealing with Herod. <clears throat> who is a political official, he's Jewish, but he's a political official who has uh, power from Rome, basically. And he's serving under them in a governing sense. And John goes to Herod, <coughs> and Herod is hanging out with his brother Philip's wife. And hanging out, you can gather what I mean by that. There's an issue there. That obviously is not a godly practice. here. You have a Jewish man who is now doing something that is not godly. And so John, who is preaching repentance and baptism, shows up, <coughs> not afraid to go to one of the top guys in the Jewish community and say, hey, you are wrong, and you need to stop. This is ungodly. You can't do that. And so Herod arrests him. He wants to kill him, but he's afraid to because he's very popular. And then you have the storyline of how he's beheaded, and you have uh, the birthday party, and they bring in Herod's daughter, and she dances, and he's happy. He says, I'll give you what you want. And so her mom convinces her, hey, let's get John the Baptist's head. So they chop put it on a plate and bring it to the daughter. It's very exciting. The Bible is very gruesome. 
Some of it's pretty nasty. So, anyways, that's a nasty part. But that's what John is teaching. To the point where he's killed for what he's teaching, the message he's bringing, and the preparation that he is now making for Jesus. (coughs) And so it says, He is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So he's very productive. (coughs) What? Oh, a bottle of water? Thank you. I appreciate that. I hate it when speakers drink water. It may, to me, it makes them, makes them look as if they're like, hey, look at me. I'm recording. I'm drinking water. So it drives me crazy. I'd rather cough. But thank you. I appreciate you, man. I love you. You're amazing. So he's very productive, though. <clears throat> he's preaching this, and people are coming in. I mean, the crowds are coming in folds <coughs> to make confession and to be baptized. It says he's very productive, and so it, is, it obviously is ripe now for what God is doing. Obviously, you, if you, we go back to Malachi again, and they go, where is the God of justice? Where are you at? And he says, I'm coming, and he gives them this futuristic abstract, I'm coming. We see by the time he shows up, they are ready to go. That's very good at timing. It's, I mean, it's ripe for the picking. So John comes and begins to bring all these people, and they're coming to repentance and making an appeal by what they're doing. <clears throat> and then in verse 6 it says, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. <clears throat> and this was the message. I'm going to stop there for one second. So, John, let's talk a little more about this guy, John. <clears throat> you obviously have this connection with Malachi uh, and Isaiah and both those quotes. And so we have this prophetic, here is a messenger coming, and now here's, here he is, and John came. But not only that, they further describe him, and, and they make a, uh, a close connection with uh, Elijah just in how he looks and how he appears. It says his clothing is made of camel's hair, and he wears a leather belt around his waist. If we go back and look at Second Kings one eight, I think it is Elijah described as a hairy man that wears a leather belt, and so you have an appearance that's much like one of the top prophets that they have, Elijah, who did not die. <clears throat> who is so close to God that at the end of his ministry, a chariot comes down, picks him up, and takes him to heaven. And so there you have a connection. Also, it talks about he's got this strict diet of locusts and honey, which is odd, <clears throat> that you eat bugs and honey. Honey is very, fairly healthy for you if you don't know. But bugs, you want me to take a drink of water now? The only time I will do this is when my wife says, take a drink of water. You're irritating me. Thanks, babe. Yeah, wash down those bugs, you hairy man. I shave my arms, my legs, and my armpits, if you guys wanted to know. So I'm one of those weird guys that shaves everything but my head and my face. Like, here, up. Anyways. I've told you guys way too much tonight about who I am instead of about this. So he's got this obvious physical connection, and then it describes his diet. <clears throat> we go back to Daniel 1a. Again, we're just making some, some links on Old Testament in prophets and how this is all coming together and how John is then depicted. If we go back to, to Daniel 1a, the whole story of the chapter 1 of Daniel is Daniel and his three companions are taken from, <clears throat> taken from Israel, taken into Babylon, and they are sat, they are picked, hand-picked. They're the most attractive, most athletic, smartest, brightest. Here they are. This is the best of the best that we have. They're brought into the king and they're going to be trained for three years to serve the king. And, and Daniel actually does that. We go through, he serves 
80 plus years for the king or 70 plus years for the king. He served a long time under the kings of Babylon. Um, but in chapter 1, he's given this diet from the king and he asks and, and, and pleads and, and pushes and pursues, hey, what you're feeding us, we are deeming as unclean and ungodly. And so I want to have a strict diet of vegetables and water. Please feed us this. And again, it's obviously not vegetables and honey, <clears throat> but you have this clear distinction of here's a strict diet that is odd. I mean, even vegetables and water, and that's it. That's kind of odd. Um, <clears throat> but you have this strict diet that, again, closely links him with another prophetic figure in our Old Testament. So you, you see clear references that connect these two stories or connect these. Here's your Hebrew Bible. Here's the story of God moving and moving through time, pursuing and we make a clear connection at least 400 years later when nothing has happened so far. We make a clear connection to begin with. Mark starts with, hey, the story that's being told is now being continued. And it's being continued with John that then leads to Jesus. That was foretold, that was promised by God, and now God is coming through on the promise he made. The people in Malachi's day, he's now doing and fulfilling in the story of Jesus. Which, again, if we go back to the three basic concepts that we like to look at in Scripture, what does it communicate? Scripture tells us who God is, tells us who man is, and tells us how to respond to him. There's a lot of other things, but those are your three basic concepts you can pretty much get out of any passage that is there correctly. And so this tells, or at least in my view, this tells us who is God. He's one who fulfills what it is that he says he's going to do. It may take a long time to get there, but he's going to get there. And he clearly, he tells the people in Malachi's day, I'm going to get there. Here I am. He fulfills what he says he's going to do. We can trust him. We can rest in that. Even when when situations don't look good, when things aren't bright, when things are bad, we can trust in the promises we have from God that I love you. I will give you grace. I will give you peace. I will sustain you through a situation. And in the end, I will put you back to right the way that I had originally intended you to be. And, and, and those are the things that we can trust that God is going to do. <clears throat> so he goes on and says, and this was his message. Not only is he teaching repentance and baptism, <clears throat> he says, after will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John begins to teach about the one who is coming. Not only am I prepping, <clears throat> or John, not me, not only is John prepping, you need to turn from, you need to act differently, you need to live differently, you need to think differently, you need to treat people differently. You need to be different the way that God wants you to be, that intended you to be, for you to worship him. Let me dunk you in some water to make an appeal to indicate that you're moving back in that direction. And then he says, there's another one coming after I. Because of John's significant popularity, he says, there's somebody else coming, and I'm not fit to sit down and tie up his sandals which is a fairly nasty job, unless you like feet. Because, I mean, they, they walk these open sandals, there's dirt everywhere, it's, I mean, it's totally disgusting, and it's, ugh. And he says, I'm not even fit to kneel down and tie this man's shoes. He is so great. And he goes on to explain, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's one where we get to look at another, <clears throat> another account. If we go to Matthew 3, and Luke does the same thing, with this conversation, uh, or, or at least this discussion about what John says, <clears throat> if you go to Matthew 3.11, again, this is Matthew's account 
of John preparing the way and what he's doing. And we're going to read uh, in verse 11, I believe. <clears throat> in that discussion, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, I whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. <clears throat> and so Mark says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, which we're going to discuss in a second. But Matthew, <coughs> I have to do it again. I'm really sorry. Look at me. I'm so important. I have a bottle of water. I think that's what it is. Like nobody else gets water but the speaker because he's calm. Um, but here we have a difference. You've got Matthew says, John says the Holy Spirit and fire. And Mark says what? The Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Again, if we match those two up, just logical American thought process can be, well, somebody's wrong. Somebody's now lying. Is, is Matthew trying to add to because he has an ulterior motive? Is Mark trying to leave out because he has an ulterior motive? What is going on with this situation? Why is not everybody giving us the truth? Right? Can't, can be a persuasion. And that's not what's going on. And this is, this is a simple one, obviously, to deal with. They get more complex. But a good illustration that I use often when dealing with this, if you were to ask me, what did you do this morning? I would tell you, from my perspective, it, it, not only my perspective, but wanting you to hear my perspective and react in a certain way, I would tell you, I got up at 5.30 this morning. <clears throat> I then put my contacts in. I fixed my hair. I picked out my clothes. I put deodorant on because that's what any normal, clean man will do. Put on deodorant. I brushed my teeth, and I left and went to work, and I had left my truck outside so I didn't wake up my kids because I'm a very sensitive father and husband, right? And so my motives are, for one, for you to think, wow, you got up early today. Way to go. You're a man. Because men get up early. That's what men do. I don't know why, but they do. And so that's a very manly quality. Not only that, but I'm going to tell you what I did on Sunday, thinking maybe you'll think he always gets up at 5.30 when there's no chance that happens, right? Most of you probably know that. But if I'm speaking to a crowd who doesn't know me well, that may be what they think. And so that's what I'll communicate. And, and then we'll go through that story. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to reveal to you, this is what happened, but from my perspective, and I'm, I'm meriting, I'm trying to merit a response from you, right? If you're then to ask my wife, what did Case do today? <clears throat> she might tell you, he got up at 5.30, but she's also going to add, his alarm went off at 5.15, his alarm went off at 5.25, and I finally shoved him out of bed. So now I don't look so manly anymore. It looks like I woke up my wife, she had to hit me with the alarm on my phone and get me out of bed. She doesn't hit me with the phone. But I don't wake up well. If my alarm goes off twice, she turns it off and then has to say, get out of bed, please. Right? And then go through the rest of the story. But just those two right there. Did I get out of bed at 5.30 and get ready? Yes. Did my alarm go off at 5.15, 5.25 and I slept through and then she finally woke up? Yes. Both are true. Both are different perspectives. Both are different people telling the same story to give you a full view of what really happened. Four Gospels are a bonus for us to get a full picture of what happened. Did John say, I am not fit to tie Jesus' sandals, and I'm baptizing you with water that's fairly insignificant in comparison to the fact that Jesus will show up and he's going to douse you with the Holy Spirit? Did he say that? Absolutely. Did John say he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire? Absolutely. Both of those happen. Both are, again, different perspectives, different people for different reasons. They're communicating what they're communicating. They don't clash, but they fit together. And so Matthew says and recalls that John says, 
Holy Spirit and fire. What does that mean? How do we get baptized with fire? And that kind of hurts, right? If we, if we go back, we'll just go one passage. You don't have to flip there. I'm not going to do it. Isaiah 6. If we go back to our Old Testament and we look at it, and again, this is another way the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible and the story of God then connects with what God is doing with the New Testament church. And we look at Isaiah, and in Isaiah 6, there's a call of Isaiah, and he, he sees a vision. He has a vision, and he's in the throne room, and he's with God, and he's in awe to the point where he is awestruck and not able to speak clearly in saying, just in, in sight of God, woe am I, I am a man of unclean lips. Merely at the sight of the throne room of God and what's surrounding him and the worship that is taking place during that moment in this vision, a godly man, Isaiah, is speechless to the point where he said, well, not so much speechless, but literally the translation of how he responds is, Ugh. And he says, whoa, my, I'm a man of unclean lips. And what does God do? There's an angel that picks up a coal, a burning coal, and he takes it and places it on Isaiah's lips. And then he says, you are clean. I want you to go and begin to share this message with my people. And so fire is seen throughout the story of God as a cleansing agent. Does that mean God's going to burn you? No. But again, it makes this connection. What I'm doing, John, what John is doing is is important, and I'm preparing, and I'm, prepa- I'm prepping you for when Jesus shows up. But it is very insignificant compared to what Jesus is going to do in you, and the cleansing that He's going to make. And so we have this connection again with this Old Testament storyline in, in this idea of fire being a cleansing agent, and then we also hit the Holy Spirit, which is very practical in in our conversation about Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If we go to Acts two, and we we see the beginning of the New Testament church and church life and how God begins to move in this people group and in man and the redemption of man through Jesus in that relationship. We look at Acts 2 and you have a group of men and women, roughly 120 people, uh, are gathered and kind of waiting on what God has told them. Jesus has, has had a conversation with his disciples. He has left. He's ascended to heaven. He said, go back to Jerusalem. I want you wait, and I'm going to send you the one that's going to empower you. So they go back and they wait, and they're praying. And they're discussing some issues. And then in Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost. And we see the Holy Spirit shows up and and dwells these men. And and it's this concept of these men now moving into being in in the sphere of influence or inside the location of where Jesus is reigning. Which is a full... What I want to do is go beyond this picture of, okay, here's God and he just shoved himself inside you. Which is a good picture. But a fuller idea, a fuller concept, that, I mean, when you explain to a child, ask Jesus into your heart, you know, as a five-year-old, you picture Jesus shrinking down and walking in your ear, you know, and going to canal and now, okay, now I'm located in the heart, I'm okay. But much fuller than that, I am now positioning my life, myself, all that I'm doing, all that I am, is now within Jesus' sphere of influence. And we have the Holy Spirit that shows up And this concept begins to practically happen. And these men are physically changed in their abilities, what they do, how they speak. Peter himself, who a month and a half before stands, having confessed who Jesus is earlier in Jesus' ministry and conversation, Peter was the first one to be able to to articulate, other than John, be able to articulate, Jesus, this is who you are. And it was a revelation that God had made to him and shown clearly, this is who Jesus is. Jesus states that to Peter. But yet, without the Holy Spirit, Peter is completely worthless. 
<clears throat> and we see that, you know, Jesus is going and going through trials and he's crucified. And Peter three times says, I have nothing to do with this man to the point of where he's cursing. I want nothing to do with this situation. Leave me alone. And then a month and a half later, we see this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Peter stands in the same proximity of where he denies Christ. And 3,000 people come and begin to follow Jesus. And so as where John shows up and begins to prep, hey, I'm baptizing with water. I'm teaching you to repent. I'm teaching you to begin to turn back to God, make an appeal for forgiveness. Because when Jesus shows up, you will be ready to hear his message. But the one who is coming when God shows up, when the God of justice shows up, the baptism he makes of you, in you, will be of the Holy Spirit, will be of fire, will cleanse you and change you. And so it goes on, it says in verse 9, it says, At the time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. <clears throat> verse 10, As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, who I love, and you are well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended to him. And so here you have, John has this conversation, he explains these things, <clears throat> and then Jesus shows up. Mark's really quick in his storyline so far. I mean, he starts out, and we're going. Boom. We don't even get the story of Jesus and John, or in John being born. We're there. Welcome. And so Jesus shows up, and you don't even get the conversation that Jesus and John have <clears throat> uh, about Jesus shows up, and John says, hey, I'm not going to baptize you. And Jesus says, no, this is something that God has ordained. You need to do this and be obedient. Dunk me, please. And so he does. And in this account, which is which is unique again to Mark, Jesus shows up. Obviously, he's baptized, which is not a unique uh, thing. But Jesus, it says, he comes out of the water, and he specifically, in the other accounts, we see that everyone around sees this opening up of the heavens and the, doving, the dove descending. But here you've got Jesus specifically being indicated as the one. He comes out of the water and he sees the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And so it's very interesting that, that Mark would then communicate that a little differently and distinctly that Jesus comes out of the water and specifically Jesus sees heaven open up. Jesus sees the Spirit of, the Spirit of God descending on him and Jesus hears this voice. This is my son in who, in who I'm well pleased, which can't, can be an argument for Jesus then realizes, and this is the first time Jesus recognizes who he is. Um, <clears throat> I don't hold that position. I think Jesus probably had a good idea who he was to begin with, uh, because he was God. It, it depends on what your Christology is and how you get there. <clears throat> but, but he's specifically communicating something. Uh, and, and it's obvious that Jesus comes out. He sees the heavens. He sees uh, the dove descending. He hears this voice. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And again, the other accounts give us a full picture of what's going on and everybody gets to hear. And this is one of those instances where we, we are able to describe a little bit about this idea of the Trinity and how we put this thing together. And you have the Father and you have the Son and you have the Holy Spirit. You have all three are one, which is so confusing for us, but here's a good picture of where the three are dis, are very distinct, working in a specific way but, but yet they're all one. So, I mean, it's a good way for us to be able to describe there are three pieces at work here. It doesn't mean there's three gods. We obviously argue that, that there's one because, again, it fits with our Hebrew Bible and the story of God. And there's a, it's a monotheistic religion. It's very clear from the beginning that Yahweh says, I am God, period. <clears throat> but here we get to see this is God working in three very distinct ways. 
working as the Father, confirming this is what I'm doing with Jesus. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit descending and indicating possibly the power of God, possibly just the fact that this whole thing is really happening. Again, this message from Malachi, where is the God of justice? He's right here. In a miraculous way, coming out of the water, heaven's opening up, there's a voice from heaven, a sub descending, and it's very clear. At a minimum, this is a very special man, but it's very clear from the storyline, the God of justice has shown up, and it's Jesus. And so, again, the the whole purpose of tonight is for not for me to hammer something home. Obviously, for us to communicate this idea of what our painting about us tonight is Jesus, and you've got a dove, and you have fire, and this idea of baptism, and what Jesus brings, <clears throat> and a baptism of the Holy Spirit, and a baptism of fire, and, and an actual cleansing agent, that Jesus' work in us, that then changes us, and makes us productive for his kingdom, and begins us in that process of correction. <clears throat> that That is a clear point, but again, the main thing that we're doing tonight, just beginning the study of Mark, and we're entering into this idea of, let's walk through the story of Jesus. And we're going to walk through looking at all pieces, but making it through Mark so that <clears throat> the whole purpose of what I would like us to do on Sunday nights, the reason that I'm here to do this is for us to become a community of God, which we are already as Rock Point, but for this to become a community that understands who God is and responds to Him. And I don't know that I just said that right. I worked on it for months, uh, and I think I just blew it out of the water and how it's supposed to be uh, communicated. Us being together as a family and us understanding who God is by, by studying his word and, and doing so in a way that's understandable, that's graspable, that's all connected. So, anyways, this is our beginning of our study of Mark. Um, <clears throat> we'll continue on as, as he walks through the storyline next week. We'll, we'll pick up uh, and, and work through at least some of the, the rest of chapter one. The following two weeks, we're going to discuss sacrificial giving. That's where our church is going to be as a body. Um, all together on Sundays and what we will be discussing. And so those two nights we will move out of Mark. That will but not be the norm. Usually when we go into a book, we will stay there until we finish. Uh, but this will be a special occasion that my pastor actually asked me uh, to do. I didn't get a choice. Um, but I'm happy to do it. I'm more than happy to be uh, submissive to that. That sounds like we're married. Whatever. I'm going to shut up. So I want to pray. and Let's wrap this thing up. God loves you. Uh, and... Obviously, this is the story of him beginning to reveal a fuller picture of how that looks and what God did with man. So, God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for another chance to come together to study your word. <coughs> we thank you again for uh, the forgiveness that we get in you, uh, that, that we get to know you. We get to be a part of what you're doing, a part of your family, a part of your kingdom. God, we pray for opportunities this week to love people, to love you, uh, to share you with them. Uh, help pray that you will. Help us to recognize uh, those opportunities to have the strength, the wisdom, the discernment uh, to take those in, uh, and to reach out to people to be impactful. God, again, we just thank you for your love, your forgiveness, all you've done and all you are in your precious name we pray. Amen.